I don't know about you, but I'm just beginning to th uh, thaw out a little bit from this morning. It's always encouraging to see the good number of folks that come out for our sunrise service, but it was cold today. But you know, in 25 years that I can remember, we've only had one Easter Sunday that we've had to move inside with that service. Uh, but again, it was cold, so uh, I'm glad it's warm and toasty in here. And think about the, a three-and-a-half-hour service in Malawi with Kevin Knight preaching an hour and 20 minutes. I promise I'm not going to try to duplicate that this morning, but pray for them as they will be uh, working in towns and villages all this week. You know, uh, Kevin Seeger and Kevin Knight both have told me before, they said, uh, Scott, if we came back to Pitts and told our folks the number of decisions that we see for Christ uh, in Africa after we show the Jesus film and uh, evangelistic services and messages, they said if we actually came back and said the number of uh, professions of faith that occurred we don't think people would believe us they would think we would be ministerial uh, ministerially speaking and blowing it far out of proportion but uh, they see hundreds hundreds come to faith in Christ and you're a part of that uh, you're giving that our young people uh, and adults can go around the globe on mission uh, so you're very much a part of that. I look forward to hearing what they uh, have to tell us uh, when they get back uh, after next Sunday. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? I'm going to bring a message this morning entitled, A Risen Christ for a Fallen World. A Risen Christ for a Fallen World. And I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Listen to what... Uh, John writes for us he says I John am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance which Jesus uh, to which Jesus calls us I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus it was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like a son of man he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest his head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like flames of fire his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. 
He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came out from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we thank you that in a world like we live in today and a world like John's world, we have the glorious message of a risen Savior. He's not dead. He's alive. And Lord, because you are alive, you have the power and the wisdom and the authority to work in and through your church and to be very present in the lives of your children. God, we are thankful for that, that there is no trial that we go through. There is no hardship, no tribulation that is beyond your touch and your help. Father, I pray for the strength of your people that you would equip us in every way to live as shining lights for Jesus in this dark world. God, I pray that it would be your good pleasure to use this message today to accomplish your purposes in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, the New York City Marathon is probably the most prestigious marathon in the world and in fact there are people from all over the world that travel into the United States so that they might be one of the runners in the New York City Marathon and to this date the fastest time that anybody has ever run that race is two hours five minutes and six seconds. It was a record that was set by a man from Kenya, Africa, back in 2011, and it is a record that still holds today. But you know, what's so astounding about the New York City Marathon is not the runner who has turned in the fastest time, but the runner who has turned in the slowest time ever. His name is Bob Weiland. He's a Vietnam veteran who stepped on a landmine in 1969 in Vietnam and he fully blew off both of his legs. 
And yet he was one of over 50,000 runners in the 1986 New York City Marathon. And he was one of the 19,800 runners who finished. And he ran the entire marathon not on his legs but on his hands. And he finished the marathon in four days, 17 hours and eight minutes. Think of that. Four days. The average time of a finish is four hours. He finished in four days, 18 hours and seven minutes. You can imagine the attention he garnered by the end of that race with politicians and media personnel and even other runners who were cheering him on. He would literally have to lift his torso up and and move it forward and set it back down and he went that way each step of the way. But he finished. He finished the race. Despite the hardships he faces in his life, he finished the race. He kept his eyes on the goal. Folks, this Easter Sunday, rather than focusing on our problems, rather than focusing even on our nation's problems, who we need to focus on is our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He's risen, he reigns, and one day he's coming again for his bride. Now I want you to think with me about John for a moment. John and his world, he is exiled. He's a prisoner. The world that the Apostle John lived in was a world at this time that hated Christians. And you know, I couldn't help but think this week as I was planning this message how the world has come full circles in many ways related to Christians. You see, early Christians were despised because they did not embrace the Roman Empire's value system at the time. They did not embrace the loose morals and the almost non-existent sexual ethic where anything and everything was allowed and endorsed. And because Christians did not embrace that current agenda, they were despised. Roman emperors would either kill or imprison believers. They would sometimes have believers dressed in animal skins and thrown into the Colosseum arena for lions to attack. Nero, one of the emperors before this occasion in Revelation 1, he would even have Christians dipped in a tar-like substance tied on the end of long poles and he would stand these poles up with the Christians tied on them and he would light them on fire so they would be living torches in his beautiful gardens that he was known for. 
Again, Christians did not go along with the agenda of the governing powers of the day. They would not burn incense to Caesar. They would not worship the Roman gods. In fact, as the Roman Empire began to decline, the Christians actually got blamed. The Romans said the reason their society was declining is because the Roman gods were angry at the Christians because the Christians would not worship them. And that's why Romans said that their society was beginning to decline and they put all the blame squarely on the shoulders of the Christians. And so again, John's world was a world that was hostile against Christianity. John himself was an exile. He was a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. They would send people to this island. It was a mining camp. They would send them there to work as prisoners in the mine. It was a small island about 37 miles off of the coast of Miletus near Ephesus in Asia Minor. But I want you to notice what happened here. What was the answer to John's problems as he lived in a fallen world that had turned against him and other believers? The answer that the Lord gave to John was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is risen from the dead and he is present in the lives of his children. I want you to notice that John was in worship on the Lord's day. You know, there's a lot of people that might use the excuse of hardship to turn away from God. Life is difficult. Maybe something has happened to them that they are bitter about. And so they turn away from God. They turn away from worship. But not the apostle John. John was in worship on the Lord's day. And what is it that God showed him? Again, the Lord showed John that he is glorified. He's not dead. He's on his throne. You know who I think of? I think of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the earthly king was dead. A king that had brought peace and prosperity to the nation of Israel for many decades. And and that king was now dead. And so I'm sure everybody was wondering about the future of the nation. And Isaiah goes into the temple to worship God. And what is the vision that God gives him? The, The vision God gives him is that God, the king of kings, is still on his throne. He's not dead and he's in charge. It's interesting that's a common vision we see in the Bible when God's people were facing hardship. Folks, in a world like ours today, we need to be faithful in worship and we need to see that Jesus is alive and he's still on his throne. He's coming again for his church one day and he's going to come in great power and victory but until then he's able to watch over his church, he's able to watch over you and he's able to give you the strength and the wisdom you need for everyday life. 
He doesn't promise us that we're not going to have to face hardship and trials and tribulation. He doesn't even promise us that we might not have to die for our faith one day. But what he does promise is he's with us and he will watch over his bride. Through life or death, tribulation or hardship, Jesus will always be with his bride. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Folks, this vision of the resurrected and reigning Christ was intended to give John whatever strength and courage he needed in his life in order to go on. And I want you to see how John develops everything here in this vision that the Lord gave to him. Look with me first of all at how he speaks about the uniqueness of Jesus' life. Beginning there in verse 8, Jesus identifies himself as none other than the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, he is eternal. He's the first and the last, the eternal one. There has never been a time that he hasn't been there and there will never be a time that he will not be there. Life may change. Your circumstances may change. The world around us may change as indeed it is. But Jesus is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He's always there and always has been. In verse 9, John says he was exiled to Patmos and a prisoner, not because he committed some kind of crime, not because he had done something evil, but he was there simply for preaching the word of God and his testimony about Jesus. But again, I want you to notice God's word to John is not to fear because of who John belongs to. You know, in Isaiah chapter 9, we're told that Jesus, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And it's this same Jesus that was with John that is with you and me today. In verses 12 to 16, John gives us a ninefold description of the risen Lord Jesus. And these descriptions make it very clear to us that Jesus holds a very unique place in history. There's nobody else like him. He's God's son, God's only begotten son, and he's not dead, he's alive, and he's very much at work in his world today. He's not somebody who's standing back just simply allowing things to spin out of control. You may think the world uh, seems like it's spinning out of control, that nobody's in charge, but I can assure you this is not true. And notice how John sees Jesus. John sees Jesus in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And we're told here that the lampstands are the churches 
And seven, we know, in the Bible is a number of completion. And so while these were seven literal churches in Asia Minor, they're probably intended also to represent all churches of all ages. And I think it's very fitting that the church is described as being a lampstand. A lampstand holds the light. The church is not the light. The church is like that. A lampstand that holds the light. We are not the light. Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world. But it is the church that extends the message of Jesus to a dark world. And I want you to notice where John saw Jesus. He saw Jesus not apart, not distant from the seven golden lampstands, but where is Jesus? Jesus is right in the middle of them. He's with his church. He's alive, and he's dwelling in the midst of his church. Folks, I want you to understand today, he is with us. He is with you. He's not absentee. He's not aloof. He's not removed from your life. He condescended to us in the incarnation. And just like he condescended to us in the incarnation, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he continues to be with us today. He ascended back to the Father, and the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit, and he is with us today. He is very much a part of our lives, and he's working in our midst. We are not here today to memorialize somebody that was dead and we just talk about their life that was in the distant past. He is alive. John got a glimpse of the glorified Christ. And I want you to notice in this vision of the glorified Christ, he saw Jesus dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and and girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is the robe of the high priest in the Old Testament. This is a description of, of the high priest garments that you would find In the book of Exodus, for example. And we know, as the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the high priest of his people. And the high priest would appear before God on behalf of his people, and he would offer sacrifice for sin. Now think about Jesus as our high priest. He's entered into God's presence to present not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, the final and complete sacrifice. And then he also escorts those who are in him into God's presence. It's like Simon Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 that the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The word Peter uses there that he might bring us to God was the word that was used of somebody escorting somebody else into the presence of a dignitary. Well, Jesus does that as our high priest. He went before us into the Holy of Holies and he offered himself the sacrifice of himself for your sin and my sin. And he also leads us as our high priest. He carries us with him into the Holy of Holies that we might be reconciled with God and that we might know God. 
That's what Christ does. That's the vision that that John sees here. And he points out that he exercises a comforting presence. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. And then in chapter 7, he goes on to say, Hence also he is able... Able to say forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Folks, the reality of his life is that he indwells his churches. He's with us. He's able to move sympathetically in our midst. He cares for us. He protects us. He intercedes for us. He is with you and me When we need him the most. You're not alone. Not only does he exercise a comforting presence. But also a purifying presence. John sees this figure as having hair as white as wool. Like like snow. It is a picture of Christ possessing knowledge and wisdom. He's the all wise God. He's the shepherd who leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Have you ever wanted somebody that can direct your life in the right pathways? Well, guess what? He can do that. He's alive and he can do that. He knows all about you. He knows all about all things. And he's not up in heaven pacing back and forth wondering what all he's going to do about everything wrong in the world. He's the all-wise God. He makes no mistakes. He never has to second-guess himself. He doesn't have to practice things until he gets them right. The white speaks not only of his wisdom, but also of his purity. He's absolutely pure in everything he does. There is nothing but perfect righteousness in Christ. Perfect wisdom and perfect righteousness. And John sees this figure also, this glorified Christ with these flaming eyes, this penetrating glance at his churches. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In his perfect wisdom, there is nothing that he doesn't see about your life. You might say, does God see what I'm going through? God sees perfectly what you're going through. He exercises a comforting presence, a purifying presence, a powerful presence. His feet are mentioned here. The feet of a king came to symbolize his authority. You see, kings in ancient times would sit on elevated thrones and their subjects would be beneath them at their feet. 
Well, here's a clear indication in Scripture that we are all under Christ's authority, under his feet. And then John hears his voice. He says his voice was like the sound of many rushing waters. You know, people may not want to listen to Christ now, but I'm here to tell you, he will be heard. John heard those waves of the sea crashing in. The the island of Patmos had this rock, big big boulders, rocky shores, and and the waves would crash in on those boulders, and it would almost be deafening. And John heard those waves. And that's how the sound of Jesus' voice is. He will not be silenced. Voices in the culture may try to silence him. They may try to push his voice out. But he will be heard. And one of these days every knee will bow before him and confess him as Lord. And I want you to notice also John saw him as holding in his hand the seven stars of the churches. The messengers of the churches. The idea is one of complete control. Jesus has complete control over his church. He's not only with us, but he's in authority. Has complete control. It's like he said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's in control. We're in his hands. And then John sees that out of his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword. Here's an image of the power of God's Word. Again, God's Word will not be silenced. People can mock the Bible. They can try to burn it, tear it up, do anything they want to with it. But guess what? Christ will have the last say. And his word is two-edged. It cuts in the direction of both blessing for those who listen to it and judgment and cursing for those who try to ignore it. Folks, this is the image that John sees of Jesus. And so again, the image that he's got everything in his control. Everything is under his authority. Everything is under his power, subject to his power. And there's no circumstances that any of us will ever face that are beyond his control. He started his good work in you at salvation. And the Bible says he will continue it and complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? I want to ask you this Easter. Do you know him? And I guess the bigger question is, does he know you? Is your name written in his book of life? Does he know you? 
The second thing I want you to notice this morning in verses 17 and 18 is the imperishability of Jesus' life. Look again at verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. John falls at his feet. There's no way to stand before Christ as equals would stand before one another. John falls at his feet. But I want you to notice what Jesus says to John. Fear not, I'm the first and the last. The first and the last and the living one. It's a title that was used of God in the Old Testament as God was contrasted to all the deaf and dumb idols of the nations. When all the false gods have come and gone, only he remains. He is eternal. He is uncaused. He is the self-existent one. In John 5, Jesus said to his opponents, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. His life was never derived from some other source. But he's always been self-existent. Remember John 1, 1 that tells us in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God? There's never been a time that He was not. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. And He made all things in John 1, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being why is that important because folks nothing is more important than him nothing created him he is not subject to any other power or authority you know what it doesn't matter what your friends think of you the real question is what does Jesus think of you what does Jesus think of you and furthermore, as our living Redeemer, he, 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 do, he didn't simply die. He became dead in order that we might live. In other words, the living one, the eternal, self-existent God who could not die became a man and died. Think of that. In his humanness, he died without ceasing to exist as God. That's one of the mysteries of the incarnation. Christ was fully God and fully man. Two natures in one essence. Before the incarnation, he only had one nature. He was fully God. But after the incarnation, he's not only fully God, but fully man. When he died, he died as a man. But pertaining to his deity, he did not die. God can't die. He became a man so he could identify with our hurts, with our temptations, with our weaknesses. He became a man that he could go to the cross and die for your sin and my sin. He died on the cross, but it was not the end. Because you see, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus was sinless. Death had no right to keep him. 
the grave had no right to keep him. He could not and would not remain dead. And so he was raised to life. Paul in Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection validates everything about who Jesus is and what he did. Folks, you and I cannot work off our own sin to God. You will never have enough good deeds. You will never work your way to heaven. Christ died for you. You simply need to turn to Him, trust Him, and Him alone for salvation. His death at the cross was once for all sufficient and that's why the Bible also says for those who are in Christ you will not remain dead either as he died you will die but as he was raised to life those in him will likewise be raised and will be with him throughout eternity one day because he lives you too shall live You know, death had him that one time, but could not keep him. He is never to die again. Paul said in Romans 6, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. As the eternal God-man, Christ lives Forever and ever in a union of glorified humanity and deity. And why is that so wonderful? Because Hebrews 7 says he is able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him. Seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. Christ is the ever living one. That's the vision that John saw. And remember that Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If he were still dead, he couldn't do that. But because he lives, he's going to prepare a place for his children one day. And folks, you know what that means? It means that not only in life do we not have to fear We don't even have to fear in death because he's conquered death. He's conquered the grave. He's conquered sin. He's conquered everything that is against us. And he lives. Amen? Well, a third thing I want you to see in verse 18, the sovereign power and authority of Jesus. Look at what he says again. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. What are those keys? Those keys are a sign and a symbol of his authority and power. He has power over human death, He has power over sin, power over the grave, power over destiny. He has the authority and power to decide who lives and who dies and where one spends eternity. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus said to those who were compared to sheep, He said, enter in to my kingdom. 
To those who were compared to goats, he said, depart from me. I never knew you. He has the power and the authority to determine who's saved, who's lost, who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. He holds the keys to life and death. Again, this is not a source of fear for Christians. Because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. If a man believes in me, he shall live even if he dies. Folks, your loved ones who have died in Christ, I want you to understand Christ has absolute authority over them. Their death has not changed that one bit. They are with him even now. And you will see them again one day and you will see him because he lives. And life is in his name. This is the vision of the glorified Christ that John saw. What does this mean we need to do? We need to come to him. We need to believe upon him. We need to rest our very lives and eternity on him. We need to cast all of our care upon him. And we need to live for him. Do anything but ignore him. John was helpless on the Isle of Patmos. But Jesus wanted John to see that while he might have been helpless, he wasn't hopeless. Because the one who is the living one who's conquered death had John in his hands. John didn't need to fear. And you and I don't need to either. Decades ago, Steven Spielberg came out with this best-selling movie, Jaws. You remember that movie? And the second victim killed in that movie by the great white shark was a young boy by the name of Alex Kentner. He was played by the actor Jeffrey Voorhees. Later in the movie, Mrs. Kentner is dressed in black. For her son's funeral. She approaches the chief of police. And she slaps him in the face for not closing the beaches. She said, I just heard that a young girl was killed last week by this shark. And you did not close the beaches. You allowed people to go in swimming anyway. Well, one film and television website picks up the story many years later with a true story. Lee Fierro, who played Mrs. Kittner, walked into a seafood restaurant there in L.A. and noticed on the menu an item called the Alex Kittner Sandwich. A fish sandwich that people could eat. She laughed and commented how she had played his mother in the movie. Well, the owner of the restaurant saw her on the cameras, came out to meet her. He was none other than Jeffrey Voorhees who had played her son, Alex. They hadn't seen each other in years and years. In fact, they hadn't seen each other since, since the movie. They hugged. And they laughed together. 
you know, in heaven things are gonna things are gonna be that way between believers, but not in the fakeness of movies, but in reality. People who have experienced the pain, the loss of a loved one will be reunited again in Christ. How is that possible? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me give you some takeaways. Jesus is unique among all who have ever lived. He alone was the only begotten Son of God. He is Lord over all of creation including life and death. Second takeaway, the resurrection of Christ means that everything about the life and ministry of Christ, including his sinless life and death for sin, was affirmed and accepted by the Father. The wages of sin is death, but Christ was without sin. Therefore, his resurrection was a necessity. As I quoted a moment ago out of Romans 1. Romans 1, 1.4 says, He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection confirms everything about the life and ministry of Jesus that the Bible speaks of. And thirdly, I want you to see, because Jesus is alive, you can face tomorrow. As the hymn says, life is not without hope. Jesus is present in the lives of his children. You are not alone. You are not on your own as you walk through life in this fallen world. If you're in Christ, he's right there with you. And he holds you in his hands. Again, you need to come to Him if you've never done so. He can transform your life. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll transform your life. He'll give you new life in Christ. You'll know exactly what that means. The new life that He gives you. Where all all things that are old are gone. They're past. And He'll give you a new start. A new beginning. Come to Him. Understand that you're never alone. Lean upon Him if, if there's some trial or hardship that you're experiencing in your life or family this morning. Come to Him. Cast that care at His feet. He cares for you. Folks, His death on the cross proves once and for all that He cares for you. What more could He have done? He laid down His life for you that you might Know God and be reconciled to God. You can cast all your care upon Him. Know that He will be with you not only in this life, but even after you die one day, you'll be raised and you'll go to that place that He has prepared for you and you'll be with Him for all of eternity. Is it any wonder that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter. He's hemmed us in on every side by His love, His power, His grace. And He's able to do that because He lives. Would you stand please?
I'll be here to pray with anybody that feels like they need to come forward and just casting some care upon him. If there's one here that knows that they need Christ in their life, I'm here to pray with you. The other pastors are here to pray with you. Again, do anything but ignore him. He's the living Lord. He will not be silenced. He will not be ignored. Come to him today.